years ago when our girls were much smaller, they would eat very early. And one evening when I was helping my wife with an outdoor project, it was time to feed them, but we had a lot more work to do before we could finish up. So I made their dinner and and set it on the table for them and made sure they were ready to go before I started to head back outside. And I could just hear them getting together and, and you know, holding hands and saying their blessing. I thought how sweet this is going to be. So I stopped to watch and very quickly, very, like as fast as they could say it, they said, you know, God is great. God is good. Let us thank us for our food. By his hands, we are fed. Thank you for our daily bread. And so they could get to the food. And as cute as it was, and as sweet as it was, I recognized that, um, as busy as I was, that this was a teachable moment that we don't pray and ask God to bless our food to get to the food. That this was that teachable moment to say it's not about saying the prayer. It's about having an attitude of thankfulness and asking God to bless this food out of gratitude for God giving this to us and providing for us. It's not the prayer. It's the heart behind it. And thinking about that, uh, as we go through this next portion of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll begin to look at the idea of what Jesus had to say concerning prayer. And if you've been following along as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, while there have been a lot of key individual topics, the overarching theme that Jesus is really carrying through every topic he discusses and teaches on is that God cares so much more about our heart than what we do with our hands. He cares more about the why than the what, right? That it's not the the giving of money as we looked at last week with charity. That's not near as important to God as why we give the money, right? When we, you know, go and, and worship, he, he brings up the, the idea of our attitude, our heart. If we have something against other people, earlier in the in chapter 5 when we were looking at that and we saw that that God cares about our hearts he wants us to get right with people before we get right with him and so carrying on this theme Jesus moves from the idea of charity to the two other key parts of Jewish piety of Jewish religious life daily life right there there's three things the first is charity right the giving of alms and this is more than just the tithe okay this is more than the 10% required by the law of Moses to for a person to show they were truly devoted to God they would go above and beyond and give an offering an alms to somebody right somebody in need or they would leave it in the collection boxes we talked about that in our previous section uh, when we were talking about charity. So charity is the first of the three, but the second ones are prayer, and the third one is fasting. So charity, prayer, and fasting. And so today we're going to look at the next of the three and see what Jesus had to say about prayer, because Jesus goes in this order. He Last time in the previous section, Jesus taught on charity, and we talked about how God cares more about our hearts than our hands. And today we're going to pick back up in Matthew chapter 6, going through the Sermon on the Mount with verse 5. Now, once again, it's good to remember that chapters and verses were things that we put into the scripture hundreds of years, centuries after it was originally written. Jesus did not compose this sermon in multiple chunks. This was all one long message. 
even though it covers multiple topics. So this is why it's important to remember the context. Jesus is teaching his yoke as a rabbi, his teachings, right, about what, what the kingdom of God is like. And so as we go through this process, all of it is interwoven together. It, it's, it'd be kind of like going up to a blanket and pulling one thread out if we're to take it just a chunk at a time. It all weaves together to make one big tapestry or blanket, right? So Jesus moves into the next area of what the people would consider to be pious, right? Religious, holy, set apart. And what would happen here is as we look at this, that the religious leaders were able to do these things and they did it so often that it rebuilt them a reputation, right? And Jesus wants to clarify to the people that it, it's not about your reputation near as much as it is your intention. Let's look at what Jesus had to say, starting in verse 5. He says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to the Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Pray like this, Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If, we, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. So as Jesus teaches on prayer, he brings up two connections that the average Jewish person would understand. He first refers to the religious elite once again, right? He talks about them once again, as he did in the earlier sections. But he also brings now in the Gentiles, the pagans, right? The people who are not followers of, you know, of Yahweh, right? That are not worshiping the one true God. Because the average Jewish person would interact with both of them on a regular basis. If they were trying to go to synagogue and to and to participate in the Jewish, you know, life of the of, of religious culture, they would bump into, you know, the, the religious elite, right? The, the, the rabbis, the, the Pharisees, they're the Sadducees, right? These these religious groups or the scribes, right? They would bump into these religious leaders all the time. Because not only were they popular people, they were they easily stood out. They had their own style of dress. They had their own um, their own groups that they, they they shared with. They were very popular. They were invited to a lot of places, so they stood out, right? But then so did the Gentiles, because the Gentiles also didn't dress like the Jewish people did. They weren't near as modest. They had their own you know Roman Hellenistic style of clothing and talking, but they all interacted in the marketplace and all these different areas of social life together. So the average Jewish person would be familiar with both of these situations. They would be familiar with the Jewish method of praying to Yahweh, but they would also be familiar with the pagan religious rites 
because it was so interconnected in Roman culture. So let's look at the first part. The first part and the first two verses model the previous section. Jesus says, don't do what the religious leaders do because they're getting their reward now by having people praise them. But you need to do it differently so that God can see it and God will reward you later. God will repay recompense is actually the Greek uh, term for that there, right? That, that's it's not this idea of being paid a paycheck. It's the idea of being paid back something like an investment, right? And this is really important because to the religious leaders, they were getting their reward, right, for what they were doing in the moment. But Jesus wants the people to see that this idea of doing things in secret without getting the applause of anyone in the moment is an investment. Jesus will later talk about storing up treasures in heaven as we get to that point. It's this idea of making an investment towards eternity that I may not get applause from people, but I may get growth and relationship and one day applause from God, right? The whole well done, good and faithful servant idea is what we're talking about. So Jesus tells them, he says, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. Now, when we talk about the idea of, uh, of when Jews would, would pray, there are set times in that what that are considered the divine hours right when jews would stop what they're doing and they would spend time to pray approximately at 6 a.m 9 a.m noon 3 p.m and 6 p.m this was something that that has been kind of part of jewish life for thousands of years we see this even in the book of daniel that daniel prayed multiple times a day to facing towards jerusalem and this is what Jews even today will do when they hit their prayer time. They will go off on their own to pray. They will face Jerusalem and they will offer their prayers. This is very similar to what I experienced in my time in the Middle East in Islamic nations, where on the, the minarets you would hear the call to prayer and everything in, in all of the daily life, all of the stores, the restaurants would shut down. People would quit working. They would walk to the closest mosque and they would do that time of prayer during the day. And while that seemed like a lot to me, you know, in my Western American mentality, this was just normal. Now, unlike what would happen in the Islamic nations where they would stop and they would go to the mosque and offer prayers as a group. If a person couldn't do that, they would pray on their own. But in the Jewish culture of the time, this was a private thing. This was not always done in community unless it was a festival. So here's what could, could quite possibly happen. Of course, the Jews would pray in the synagogues, but they would also pray in the street. I mean, you can only imagine if they're in the marketplace, walking up and down the streets, having discussions, and all of a sudden they realize, wow, it's time to pray. And so they stop where they are and they pray where everybody is, right? And so this would be a an opportunity for people to say, wow, look how pious they are. Look how holy they are. Look how dedicated they are, that they were in the middle of a business transaction. They were in, in the middle of their daily activities and they stopped all of their busyness pray to God. And then, you know, when they talk about in the synagogues, man, they, they stand up 
to be recognized. This is this is what would happen with the religious leaders, that they would take turns, especially if they were a visiting rabbi in an area. If they were traveling around, they would go to synagogue. And as the visiting rabbi, they would be invited to stand up and pray and read from the scriptures. We see this happen even with Jesus. As Jesus travels around, because he's the visiting rabbi, he gets invited to share and, and pray in the synagogues, right? This was a normal custom. And so what Jesus is saying is these people are getting their recognition now. And they're doing it not with the right heart. They're doing it to be recognized by men. And Jesus says that that's the reward they will that they're going to get. That's all they will ever get is people seeing them here in this earthly life. You know, a lot of times when I, when I read these passages, I'm reminded of my high school days. All of a sudden, once I graduated from high school and moved into a different season, the things that seemed so important at the time, the way people viewed me, you know, the way what my reputation was, how did I fit into the social structure of the day, right? All of a sudden, man, that, that didn't matter once I graduated. It didn't matter if I was the popular kid, if I was you know, student body president or captain of a team or, or had, a, had a position on the debate team, whatever, you know, those things were gone. I feel kind of like that's the way the world is going to feel to us when we get to heaven. That all of these things that seem so important won't matter when we're in the presence of Jesus. That's what is going on. Jesus is realigning their perspective and saying, hey, it's not about earthly praise. It's about heavenly recognition. That's why when he said, Jesus says, when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Now, Jesus isn't telling them to quit participating in the festivals where they would have or quit going to synagogue. He's telling them, hey, when you want to connect with God, do it on your own. Don't do it to get praise from people. Do it to get connection with God. And he says this, then your father who sees everything will reward you. Now it's interesting that this is the first time when Jesus is talking that he mentions God as father, right? Up until now, Jesus has been talking about the people and he's talking about God and you know all that kind of stuff. But when he now that he's talking about people having this uh, connection to God and, and praying, he's really camping on this idea of father, right? You know, he mentions it earlier when he says, but you're to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. But that is really when Jesus starts moving into this idea of God as our father. And he actually teaches his disciples to pray to God as Father, right? It's one thing for Jesus to say that God is his Father, right? Because Jesus is God in skin, right? But when Jesus teaches his followers to pray, he wants us to pray our Father in heaven, right? This is radical. This is a huge shift to say that that God, your Father who sees everything, rewards you. Jesus starts bringing this new concept to them. And it would have been a massive shift to stop seeing God as this great, massive, distant thing. To now God is intimate. Abba is a term of endearment. It's almost kind of like daddy, right? It, it's, it's a familial collect connection, right? And so as, as Jesus wants him to pray, he says, hey, you need to recognize that there's a connection you're seeking here. You're not seeking to... Not, you're not trying to do like my little girls did to just say the prayer to get to the food, right? You're not saying the prayer just to say the prayer. 
you're doing it to create connection. And Jesus says that your Father in heaven will reward you. But then he brings it into a second thing. He says, "Don't you, not only do you not need to pray like the religious leaders who are doing it for man's approval, he's saying you also don't need to pray like the hypocrites, right? And he says you need to, you know, not, um, you know, you do do like them, but also don't do like the Gentiles do, right? The, the pagans, because what they do is they repeat their prayers over and over and over again, believing that if they repeat their prayers, that they will get." They're God's attention. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, the gods were much more like humans. They made mistakes. They, they had dramas. They left and traveled. And they went from place to place, whereas Yahweh is everywhere, omnipresent, right? There's no wrong place. Yes, the temple is special, but there's no wrong place to worship God. But in the Greco-Roman pagan mindset. You would have to go to the temples to offer sacrifices, and you hoped that you could get the God's attention by your offering or the seriousness of your sacrifice, right? Or by doing it over and over and over and over again and repeating it, that you would get Zeus's attention, right? That you would get Mars's attention. You might get Aphrodite's attention. Because they were like humans, they couldn't be everywhere all at once. They couldn't be present with everybody at all times. And so, if they were busy, if they were doing other things, or if they were, you know, you know, some gods would would go away for certain periods and come back at other seasons, right? That, that they were saying that you don't need to babble and repeat on and on and on. Jesus says, no, you don't have to do that because God already knows what you need. That God, Yahweh, our Father already knows our needs. What a what a wonderful thing. You see, a good father knows the needs of his children. You know, when if I'm paying attention to my girls, I know when it's time to eat. And I know when they're going to be hungry. I know when it's time for bed. I can watch them and say, wow, they, they've worked real hard today. They, they need to go to bed early. <laughs> they need to get some extra rest. Or even though we have normal routines, sometimes I'll say, you know what? We, we worked hard or we were busy and we stayed up late. I'm going to let them sleep. They need that extra sleep. I know what they need because I'm their father. How much more our heavenly father knows the needs of his children. So we don't have to pray over and over and over again the same thing. Now, this sounds like another point where Jesus is going to contradict himself. Because in later portions, when Jesus talks about effective prayer, right, he's going to say, keep on asking and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, right? At one point, Jesus even tells a parable of a old woman that goes to a judge over and over again asking for the same thing. And the judge finally gives her what she wants so that she quit nagging him. So is Jesus contradicting himself again? No, no, no. Once again, it's not the action. It's the heart behind it. The Gentiles believed that simply by saying it over and over again, they would get their God's attention. But Jesus wants us to know that we already have our Heavenly Father's attention. I don't have to think of God like a human who's distracted, who has so busy doing all these other things. And I've, I've may, met other people and even felt this way at my own time in life to say, God, you're so busy. You're running the universe. You don't, you don't have time to hear my prayers. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Our Heavenly Father always knows what we need, and He's always present, and He always wants to talk to us. He always wants to connect with us. So he knows what we need before we ask. We don't have to beg and beg to get his attention, right? 
our Heavenly Father is not the, you know, you remember the song, uh, Cats in the Cradle, right? And the, the, over and over again, the, the little boy saying, hey, Dad, you know, when you, you know, when you're coming home, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, right? As the song goes. That's not how our Heavenly Father is. He's always available. He's always ready. He's always present. And He already knows. And so then some people will say, well, what's the point of praying if God already knows what we need? Shouldn't I just say, hey, God, you know what I need? <laughs> Why? Because this is about relationship. This is about connection. You know, I love to talk to my children. My wife even fusses at me sometimes when I go to tuck our daughters in that it takes so long because we have all these things to talk about. I delight in those conversations. And sometimes I, you know, I do need her to remind me, hey, they need to go to sleep. You don't need to stand up for and talk to them for hours, right? They need to sleep. But I love talking to them. How much more does my heavenly father and your heavenly father, our heavenly father, want to hear our prayers? So Jesus gives a model. Now, once again, this model has become known as the Lord's Prayer, and it has actually become the very thing it was designed not to be. This was meant to give a method of prayer, a pattern of prayer, not an actual prayer. You see, in the very beginning, boom, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. Jesus wants us to recognize that God is our Father. He's in heaven. He's in control. Right? He's, he's ruling over everything, and his name is holy. I should go to him and prayer with a heart that is focused on him, not just to say the prayer, right? To just say the name of the Lord over and over again is to use it in vain, to disrespect it. Then he says we should pray that God's kingdom should come. That should be our prayer, that God, your kingdom is coming here on earth. We should seek that as we pray, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I could do an entire teaching time on this, but one of the, the ideas that has permeated the church in America and even around the world as, as this, this idea of authority in the church and our, the, the believer's authority has been twisted and perverted, that people believe that we need to declare things in the authority of God and that we should not say, oh, God, if this is your will, let this happen. The people say, oh, that's a cop-out for not having enough faith. That we say, oh, Lord, in your name, in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray that you would heal this person of their sickness. But, Lord, we want your will to be done, not our will. They say, oh, that's a cop-out. You're not standing in faith because the moment you say, Lord, let your will be done, we're, we're dropping our declaration down a level that it's not going to be effective. And that we shouldn't pray for the Lord's will to be done as a cop-out. But I love Louis Giglio says this, that to pray that God's will be done when we ask for things is not a cop-out, it's an opt-in. And I love that he says that because it reminds us that a lot of times my will and God's will is not an alignment. After all, I want selfish things. I want comfort. I want the pay raise, right? I want money in the bank. I want to take the vacation. I want physical health. I want to live a long time in comfort and peace, right? I don't want struggle. I don't want strife. And so sometimes that what I want is not what God wants. And so this realigns my will with his. Lord, may your will be done on earth the same way it is in heaven. And then he says, it's okay to ask for the food for today. Now, I love, love, love the Greek of this, right? If you were to read this in the Greek, it actually says that, that we should, we are, Lord, give us tomorrow's food today. That we are actually partnering with the divine, the supernatural, to have God give us provision consistently. 
You see, this is this is a a people that live in a time where food only came if you worked for it that day. <laughs> if you wanted bread, you made bread that day. If you wanted meat, you had to cook it that day. There were no, you know, freezer microwave meals. There were no, you know, refrigerators to keep, you know, sandwich meat and vegetables good for long periods of time. And so Jesus said, "Hey, you need to, to say, Lord, give us tomorrow's food today. We partner with heaven to know that God's going to provide for us. And then he says this, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. What a powerful reminder that just as God is forgiving, we should be forgiving. That every time I want God to forgive me of my sins, I need to be willing to forgive the sins of others. And then he says, don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Jesus wanted us to remember that we live in a world where the supernatural is real. And there's influence going on all the time that we don't see, both heavenly, right, for the good, and demonically for the bad. And there's a lot we could teach on this as well, but the reminder is, Lord, protect us from evil and help us to stay focused on doing good. Help us to be focused on you and not become distracted. Let us not yield to those temptations that come in life. And then he closes this section by saying, if you forgive those who, for, who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. Now that's a very striking passage. We don't teach on that very often. That if we want to be forgiven of our sins, we have to forgive others. Otherwise God won't forgive us. Now, what we end up seeing here is another possible seeming conflict. And I, I keep referring back to the idea of the rope bridge, because so many things in Christian faith and Christian theology appear to be opposites, but they actually hold each other in tension. You see, when you and I give our lives to Jesus, we are instantly, immediately forgiven, and there's no longer any condemnation for us. That's the one point. But the other point is that we're going to continue to sin. We just are. We're going to mistake, make mistakes. We're going to fail. That's not an excuse. It's just reality. And so we're completely forgiven, but we also need continual forgiveness. It's two opposite ends of the same rope bridge that hold it up, hold it together in tension. And so Jesus wants us to recognize as we live our life, understand who you are. You are connected to God, but you're also forgiven by God. And so you need to forgive others. That if I want God to forgive me, I have to forgive other people. And it's just as big as other people's sins may be towards me, that's how big my sin is too. As we get ready to close this time up, my oldest daughter, as she's been reading through her Bible study and in, in her youth group time, and she's been doing her Bible reading plan, she has all these questions, and I love that she comes to me with them. And you know, last night she was really wrestling with the fact that as God brought judgment on evil nations and evil cities, that not only were the adults killed, right, the warriors who fought in the battle, but also the women and the children as judgment. And it's no fun to talk about those things. She doesn't like it. And I have to remind her as much as I don't like it either. Why? Because that's the consequence of sin. These people are receiving the judgment for their disobedience to God. The Bible tells us the wages, what we earn for our sin, is death. And God's free gift is forgiveness and eternal life. That that's how serious God takes sin 
that it brings death. We have a very bad tendency to forget the seriousness of sin. Jesus brings that back as he closes this section on prayer and begins in the next section to talk about fasting. So what do we do with this as we close? Man, we need to pray reverently, but we also need to pray respectfully. What does that mean? We pray reverently, so wherever we pray, as a chaplain, I pray in public a lot. I get invited to do things, but I do it reverently. I don't take it for granted, but I also do it respectfully, recognizing that I'm in public or I need to do my time in private. You see why? Because it's all about connection. So I pray reverently, but I also pray respectfully. I'm not going to take God's name in vain, but I'm also not going to demand from God. I'm going to remember who I am and where I am. My Father's in heaven and I'm on earth, but He connects with me. He wants to give us the things we need. He wants to have connection with us, but we also need to be mindful not to become hypocritical, doing things publicly for our own selfish gain. So we pray, man, we pray reverently recognizing we are approaching the God of the universe and we're submitting to his will. We also pray respectfully, recognizing that other people do watch us and they are looking at how we live our lives. So I pray that this time blesses you, that you would begin to examine, how am I praying? What attitude am I praying with? Am I praying selfishly? Am I praying repeatedly, hoping to just get God's attention? Or am I praying with respect and reverence to say, God, you're holy and I want to connect with you. And more than that, God, help me to forgive others as you've forgiven me because sin is serious. So I pray that this would impact you, that your faith would be increased, your trust in God would grow, and your relationship with Him would grow deeper. Be blessed.